Thank you, uh, Chris, for the introduction. As he said, my name is Kent, and uh, just to tell you guys the, the true story of how this job came about. So I moved here, spent about a year trying to convince Chris to hire me. About every two weeks, I'd call him and say, hey, Chris, do you have a job for me yet? I think he got pretty fed up with that. He's like, you know what? I'm going to come up with a job that he'll never take. And he jokes on him. I took the job, and here I am now with you guys. It's a, a pleasure for me to be here, thankful to uh, be on stage today. Uh, it's a joy to be able to share the Word of God with you guys, and I'm thankful to be a part of a church congregation that just values developing younger leaders, that just opens space for, for young guys like myself to, uh, to grow my gifts and uh, my talents through, through speaking. And so, as Chris said, I am from Colorado, and so I regret to inform you guys that I am not a Husker football fan. And uh, yeah, the booze, bring them on. And so uh, I realized that that's not the, the greatest way, probably, you know, first time on stage, tell everybody you're not a Husker football fan. That's how you'll make a lot of friends in Nebraska. And so I say that to, because um, there's two distinct moments when I kind of learned that people in Nebraska are absolutely crazy about their football and probably a little bit too crazy. Uh, we may love our football a little bit too much around here. And so last fall, I had the privilege of going to a Husker game down at Memorial Stadium. They're playing Miami. If you've never been to a home Husker game, you have to go. It's a ton of fun. You have 80,000 people packed into the stands. Everybody is wearing red, and they're just screaming at the top of their lungs. So much fun. And so they start doing the, the player introductions where, you know, they pop up the, the face of the player. They list some, some facts about him, and then they, you go on to the next guy. And so it comes time for them to introduce Amir Abdullah. And if you don't know football, Amir is incredibly talented. He was like the core of the Husker team last year. If I was as good as him, I probably wouldn't be here this morning. I'd probably be at training camp, but, you know, maybe in another lifetime. And so his face pops up on the screen, and people go absolutely nuts. They start screaming, throwing their hands up. They're like, Amir! Like they know him, or they're going to reach out and be able to touch him. I'm like, wow, these people are nuts. It's absolutely crazy. They worship Amir, and it was, it was crazy, and this reminded me of when I had first got to Nebraska. I didn't really know what I was getting into with Husker football, and so I'm going to bring up a, a bad memory for some of you. You probably tried to bury it deep down. Uh, Big 12 championship game several years ago against Texas. I understand it's pretty controversial. Whether or not there was a second, uh, we're going to have to ask God when we get to heaven and find that out for sure. But yeah, so the Huskers lose, close game, watching it with one of my friends, and he is furious, absolutely furious. And so he lived in a, a dorm room kind of on the bottom floor, and right outside their door was a brick wall. And they had some empty beer bottles in their room. He had some unrepentant sin he was dealing with. And he would go, he'd take the beer bottle, open the door, and throw it against this brick wall, glass shattering everywhere. And I'm like, this is terrifying. It's a little bit hilarious, but I'm not going to say anything because that's just not a smart thing to do. And I find this interesting because I think when we hear the word idol or idolatry, the first image that pops into our mind is kind of an ancient people long, long ago that surrounded around these metal images to worship them. They give them sacrifice and sacrifices and do other strange things. But the truth is, we are still idolatrous people. We still idolize things. And 
Strangely enough, Memorial Stadium looks a lot like the idol worship that you might see in the Old Testament. You have 80,000 people coming together screaming for an image on a screen. It's very interesting that this parallels the idolatry that we see in the Bible. And so we are very much an idolatrous people. We worship things. This is not how we're created. And so the sad thing is, is that we have become broken in our, in our design. So God created us in his image to be image bearers that would worship him. But through our sin, we've perverted God's design and we worship things. We worship creation instead of the creator. So sometimes it is football or sports, and I have to admit that I'm a, a pretty sore loser, that when I don't win something, I get pretty upset. I might say some things that I regret, but sometimes it's, it's, it's other things as well. It can, be, it can be sex. It could be relationships. Maybe it's your career that you would do anything you can to get ahead in your job. Maybe it's the money that you have that you feel like you need for comfort, some of us idolize technology. We always have to have the, the newest phone or the, the best computer or the nicest card. We worship these things instead of God. And so we're so corrupted, and this spreads to all areas of our life, that John Calvin, a reformer, said that our hearts are idle factories. Idle factories that the primary function of our hearts now is to worship things instead of God. And the, the subtlety in that is that our hearts take things that are, that are good, that God has given us for our benefit, and we twist them and we worship those things instead of worshiping God himself. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking that, well, I don't really know what my idols are, I promise you that you have them in your lives. We all do. And it just two quick test questions for yourself to kind of figure out what they are. If you examine your, your bank account, if you look at your spending for the month, you kind of go through and see what you're spending money on, what's kind of the thing that, that pops out the most? If somebody else looked at your bank statement, what would they say is the most important thing in your life? Or when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thought on your mind? I was talking with a, a friend of mine, and he was saying that, Man, when you ask that question, honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind when I wake up is, is sleep. I want to go back to sleep. So even something like sleep, I'm not telling you guys to stop sleeping, can be perverted to an idol. He's like, man, I would rather sleep than get up and read my Bible. I think that I love sleep more than I love Jesus. And that's the danger with our idols is they're so quietly taking over the, the focus and control in our lives. And as I said, this is not God's plan for us. So God wills something entirely different. And so as God's message comes into our lives, as his work begins to confront our idols, there's this strong tension, this strong conflict between our idols and the things of God, because these two things do not mix together. And that's kind of what we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts. As the gospel message spreads, it confronts people who are not worshiping God and crazy things happen. As Peter is preaching, you have thousands of people that surrender their lives to following Jesus. But on, on, the, on the flip side of it, we see violent persecution against Christians, people that are despising this message. Paul himself murdered and killed Christians before, him, before, himself, before he himself became a Christian. 
And so we're going to hone in today on Acts chapter 19. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me. We'll have the, the text up on the screen as well for you to follow along. This is Paul spending some time in Ephesus. He was there for about three years. And as he is preaching the message that he's preached everywhere else, as he is preaching the name of Jesus and the coming kingdom of God, there are some pretty strong reactions we see. And if we kind of look in and dive in, we see that there's kind of three distinct reactions that, that these people have and that we ourselves tend to have as God confronts the idols in our lives. Well, first we'll see a, a group of people that simply protest the gospel. They, they resist it. They want nothing to do with it. They throw it out. We'll see a second group of people that see the name of Jesus as something to be used for their advantage, something to, to further along their own purposes. So they appropriate the gospel to their own circumstances. And then the final group of people that we'll see is a group that responds with repentance. They repent of their idols and turn to follow God. And so we'll begin kind of towards the the end of the chapter here. We'll work a little bit backwards, but I think you guys can track with me. Uh, We'll start in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. We see this group of people protest the gospel. They protest it. They reject the message that Paul has, and they want nothing to do with it. Because this man, uh, Demetrius, he's he's the, the leader of these silversmiths. And so this was his business, the thing that he did to, to earn his money, his whole livelihood, his whole way of life was making these silver shrines for people that worshipped Artemis. And so they would come to him, they would pay him money, and he would make them for us. And he starts to realize, man, I think what Paul's doing is threatening that. And so he becomes afraid and, he, and angry about the message that Paul is preaching. And for, for two primary reasons, because as I mentioned, his job is kind of on the line here. His job is on the line. If the gospel continues to take root in all of Asia, like he is out of business. He's not going to be able to make the money that he needs to get by. And so he's afraid, but also culturally and socially, like this was his society's identity. Artemis, their whole society, had built upon the worship of her. 
And so he is afraid that everything that he values most is under attack by the gospel. And so he gets these other guys to protest with him. And they literally start a riot. They come into this theater that probably would hold about 25,000 people. And they start yelling. It says that they yelled for two hours. And one man, he tries to get up to make a defense, but they just drown him out with their yelling. And all too often, this is our response to the gospel. We don't want to hear it. I want you guys to think about a time that you've been in an argument and think about what is the best way to win an argument. Uh, Surely it helps if you're right, that's going to help you. That's a great place to start is if you have the right answers. But the, the second best strategy is to talk louder and longer than the other person. Am I right? My parents did it to me all the time when I was younger, so I could never protest anything that they made me do. Uh, if you think about the, the LeBron-Jordan arguments, I'm on the LeBron side. Don't, don't judge me. But I, you know, sometimes I don't even have all the facts. I just start throwing out numbers and talking louder than the other person. And at the end, they're just like, you know what? I give up. Like, you're right. I don't even care anymore, you know? If you talk louder and longer than somebody, you don't even have to hear their message. And sometimes that's how we respond to God. We don't even want to hear the message that he has for us. We, we protest it. We may not yell and scream and start a riot like these Ephesians do, but we certainly resist God. We're afraid of losing our identity. We're afraid of losing our comfort as God begins to challenge where we're putting our priorities. We say, God, get your hands off of my stuff. Like, this, these, are, these are my things. I don't want them to, to be about you. So you stay in your corner of the room, and I'm just going to do my thing over here. God, stay away from my things. And foolishly, we think that what we have right now is better than what God can give us. We want to be satisfied instantly. We want instant gratification, and we do not want to be patient as the grace of God works through our lives. We, we protest the message of the gospel, and it's, it's foolish, foolishness because we look at these created things to give us joy, happiness, comfort, and security, but only the creator can give us those things. It's foolishness, and city life, this is our natural posture. This is how we tend to act towards God as we resist him. We reject his message, and we have tight hands on our things. But we must work towards being more open-handed with the things that we have in our lives. So we're going to move on in our text today. And actually, we'll move backwards, going into verse 13 here, to look at the, the second reaction that we tend to have to the gospel. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." First off, that's like a terrifying situation. Like, that would be incredibly humiliating to be at your workplace, kind of doing what you do for your job, and to be thrown out of the house naked. That's just humiliating in all senses. But this is the second reaction that we see to the gospel, is that these men 
tried to appropriate the gospel to their circumstances. They tried to take the name of Jesus for their own purposes. They had the way they were doing things, and they wanted to kind of throw Jesus into the mix. And so these Jewish men, their job was to go around and cast out demons, to cast out evil spirits. And as the gospel was spreading through Asia, Paul was doing some of the same thing. So he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And so he's doing the same thing as these Jews, but he's probably doing it better. And so these Jews feel threatened by Paul. They say, if this continues, what we're doing is going to be done. What we're doing is going to be done. We're going to have to find something else to do. So unlike the men who worship Artemis, they do see value in the name of Jesus. And so they're saying, if Paul can do this with Jesus' name, why can't we? Why can't we? Why can't we just throw Jesus' name? Maybe that'll promote our business. Maybe that'll help us out a little bit. They want to use the name of Jesus for their own purposes. They want to manipulate him and make him fit in a comfortable little box that they can use for their own purposes. And sometimes this is our own reaction. Like I said, we, we love the stuff we have. We, we love our idols, and that's why it's so hard to give them up. But at the, the same time, we do realize there's, there's some value to Jesus, I've seen him, you know, work in other people's lives, or it seems like a good thing to go to church. And so we say, all right, let's just mix the two together. Let's get the the best of both worlds, the best of both worlds. And so we attach the Christian title to ourselves, but we, we never really change. We call ourselves a Christian so we can go to heaven, but there's no real change in our lives. We want the good of the gospel, but we don't want the sacrifice. Because we feel like that's too hard. Like, God, isn't that really too much to ask of me? You really want me to to give up all these things that I like? And as as I talk to people, sometimes I am surprised at how we want to try and mix these things together. And so maybe you you get drunk regularly. That's just what you like to do on the weekends. You like to go out and party, but, but it's okay because you go to church on Sundays. Or I've talked to somebody who for, and he's like, yeah, I, I fool around with girls sometime, but you know, it's like, I'm still a Christian. Or sometimes we try to work these deals out with God, like, God, you know, if you, if you give me this job, if I can get this raise, then I'll give some money back to the church. But God, you've got to take care of me first. It becomes about our selfish desires first. We think we can manipulate God into giving us what we need. And sadly, it beca- the church becomes a place about having our own selfish desires met. We, we twist the function of the church and we try and come to church so we can get the things that we think we need. We try and mix these two worlds together that were never meant to go together. We we put a Jesus bumper sticker on our idols, so we kind of hold our idols up, and people are like, wow, you you really shouldn't have an idol, but we say, oh, nope, look here, got the name of Jesus on it, so it's okay. Or we we bring Jesus with us wherever we go, and so we can always point to him, like, yeah, you know, Jesus is here too, and so sadly, the Christian faith becomes about Jesus following us instead of us following 
Jesus. We are meant to follow Jesus, not the other way around. And so when we try and appropriate Jesus to our circumstances to make him fit, it does not work. And City Light, that cannot be our response to the gospel. It will not work. Now I want us to, to look at this, this last bit of text here, and it's a, a response of what happens to these, these Jewish men. Beginning in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The last reaction that we see here is repentance. We need to repent from our idols and turn to God. Because these, these Jewish exorcists, their attempt to appropriate the gospel to their circumstances, it didn't work out. And these men who were practicing magic, they heard about it and they realized something. A light went on for them. They realized that Jesus is so much more than just a name to get what you want. They realized that Jesus is more than a name to use to push forward your own agenda. They realized that Jesus was the, the living God, the one who Paul and Peter have been preaching about through all of Acts, that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says that he is the cornerstone, that Jesus is the name by which all men under heaven must be saved. The light went on for these men, and they responded with repentance. It was a real repentance. They made a real sacrifice. It's incredible. It says 50,000 pieces of silver was how much their books were valued. That'd be like $3 million for us. It was a real sacrifice for them. They didn't save their books. They did not save their books. They didn't leave them on the shelf so that later they could come back to them in case Jesus didn't work out. Jesus was the only plan for them. They went all in on him. There was no leaving things on the back shelf just in case. They burned their books. There was no way to go back. I think sometimes we have the heart, we have the desire to run away from our idols to get rid of them, but we leave our books on the shelf. We leave them on the shelf at home just in case we get to a hard time. It's like, man, I need to run back to that comfort. We get to a, a hard time. It's like, man, I just need to, to, to get alone and feel that comfort again that I used to feel when I was with my idols. No, we need to respond and burn our books all of us in this room, we have books that we're leaving on the shelf just in case. What are the books on your shelf that you need to burn? What are the books that you need to burn? Some of you, you have, you have this group of friends, and every time they text you, you go out and you get hammered drunk. You just get absolutely wasted. You need to burn your books and make some new friends. There are, are some of you who are, are stuck in a relationship that's full of sexual sin. Burn your books and get out of the relationship. Some of you idolize pornography. You need to burn your books and get rid of your computer. 
live without internet. Because the thing is, these books that we're leaving on our shelves, they're, they're not helping us. As a matter of fact, they're, they're destroying our lives. They're corroding our lives from the inside out. They're tearing apart your relationships. Because your addiction to pornography is beginning to ruin your marriage. And in your mind, what you're thinking is, man, I just can't live without my computer. Yes, you can. There are libraries that have internet. You do not need a computer in your house if that's the book that's tearing apart your life. Some of you are addicted to always buying something new, to buying the the best car, the best computer, the best TV, so everybody can look and see how great you are. But in the meantime, your bank accounts have been drained and you're too ashamed to tell anyone. Would you burn your books? Confess your idols? I think the beautiful thing about this passage is the word together. The word together. It says that these men came together to confess their idols. They didn't try to do a lone wolf strategy and figure it out on their own. They came together together. It was a group activity. And that's the beauty of the family of God. That's why we exist in city groups, so that we can encourage one another. We can confess our sins to one another, so that we can be restored through the people of God. Would you commit yourself to walking with a city group? Would you allow the grace of God to work in your life through the people of God? Because it's only in community that you're going to be cured of your ailments, that as the light shines on these things, that you'll be set free from the idols that you worship. City Light, would we be a church that is not content with our idols, but would we burn our books and walk in repentance? Now, now I pray that the Holy Spirit is bringing some things to mind and that this, this, you feel a little bit of a tension right now with some of the things in your life, and I, and I pray that you would share that with somebody. Would you share it with your community group? Because they will be there and they'll say, yes, I'm, I'm broken too. I'm broken too. So I pray that you would begin to do that. And I think some of us might be thinking right now, you know what? God just doesn't want me to have any fun. You know, doesn't he understand that I like all these things? We see God as this sadistic fun hater or this cosmic bully who's trying to just take away all our toys so we can't have any fun. But that's a complete lie. That is not who God is. God is a creator who desires the best for his people. God desires the best for his people. We are blinded to see that these idols are actually dragging us down. As we, we see in this passage here, it's that as we're set free from our idols, that the work of God continues to spread. And in verse 20, it says that the word of the Lord continued to prevail. It was moving mightily. As we are set free from our idols, the work of God grows in our lives. We experience the goodness of God, and the people around us experience that too through us. God begins to use us in greater ways. You see, this is what was prophesied about by by Ezekiel in chapter 37. He says that there's a time coming when God is going to free his people from these lifeless idols. He's going to remove the idols from his life. And then God will say, I will save them and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Because we have to face the reality that our idols are never as good as we make them out to be. They are never as good as we make them out to be. 
the relationship that you value more than anything, that person that you worship in your life, that is not going to be a comfort to you. It is not going to be valuable when that person hurts you deeply. All the wealth, the money, the comfort you have in material things is not going to be valuable when tragedy strikes the family. Your physical appearance, the way others see you, is not going to be valuable when you're alone and you have no place else to go. It's not going to be useful to you anymore. The pornography that you're worshiping will be of no value to you when your marriage has fallen completely apart. The issue is is that we're taking these created things and trying to make them do what only God can. We're looking to these created things to give us identity, comfort, joy, happiness, peace, but they will always fail us in those areas because only God, the creator, can give us those things because God desires to give us immensely more than these idols can give us. He desires to give us so much more. The the best thing for us is actually God himself. And God desires the best for his people. And so miraculously, God has done this in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God came down from heaven, took on the flesh of man. He took on our brokenness, our tendency to run after idols instead of him. And he was crucified with it. He died on the cross to pay for our shortcomings. And then he rose again from the grave so that we would experience being a new creation, empowered by the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That we would be God's people and that he would be our God. So it's, it's fitting today that we are going to respond by, by taking communion together, by partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so if you're a communion server, you can go ahead and dismiss yourself to the back and prepare the elements. And, and we do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he brought his disciples together. And they began to take the Passover meal with one another. And Jesus broke the bread and he handed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And then Jesus poured the wine and he handed it to his disciples. He said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. It is a new covenant. And every time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. And so it's this this beautiful thing that we get to, to celebrate what Jesus has done. We remember the work on the cross as we come to the table. We remember what Jesus has accomplished for us, that he has accomplished justification by his blood. We also, we also celebrate because we look forward to a day when Jesus is coming back again, that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. And yet in the meantime, we are reminded that Jesus is still here to us in the present, that though he is absent from us physically, he is still very much present to us, though it may be mysterious. And so that's what we celebrate at the communion table. And so by, by way of instruction, you can dismiss yourself from your rows whenever you're ready and, and, and come forward. And the, the table is open to anyone who would profess Jesus as their, their Lord and Savior. And if that's, that's not you this morning, I would just invite you, feel free to, 
to stay in your seats and just reflect upon the message this morning. Let me pray. God, we know you are glorious. We see your beauty throughout all of creation. We cannot help but sing your praises and know that you are good. But at the same time, God, we, we know that we, we make this creation more than it ought to be, that we worship it instead of worshiping you, Lord. Lord, as we come to take communion this morning, would you reorient our hearts towards you? Would you remind us of who you are and the grace that you freely given us, Lord, so that we would be freed from the things that are holding us down, free from the things that enslave us. And so, Lord, we come together and we offer the praise and the thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.